Good morning, everyone. Have you ever had an experience where you've heard a story or uh, read a book or uh, seen a movie before and then watched or read it again and the experience is completely different? Uh, it might be that someone else told you about it or you read a review, uh, but when you watched it for yourself, uh, there was so much that they missed. Uh, it could even be something that you'd seen before uh, yourself, but you'd forgotten all the details and just summarised it in your mind. Uh, an important movie for me and Rosie comes out next week. Uh, we're watching all of the, the Marvel movies. There's a 23 movie build-up coming out uh, with the final movie coming out next week. Um, and to like, prepare ourselves for watching that, we've uh, watched um, all of the movies in the past couple of weeks to try to remind ourselves everything that had happened. And as we were going back through, we were like, wow, there's so much interconnectedness, this related to that. Uh, and it uh, kind of all made more sense. I wonder, do you ever have that experience coming to church? If you're a regular with us, it might be, oh, I've studied that passage before. I don't really need to pay attention. Or, I'm the senior pastor and I've been to Bible college. I can switch off during the sermon. <laughs> but you'd never be like that, would you, Colin? If you're a visitor here, and church might be something you only ever do uh, for Easter or Christmas, you might think that, oh, I know how the story goes. There's nothing new I can hear about it. I think many of us, if we're honest, might have that approach to the Easter story. The story of Jesus' extraordinary death and extraordinary life. Let me take you on a journey through this story as we slow down and look a bit closer. And I wonder if we'll see something more extraordinary than what we previously thought. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were a disciple of Jesus. You've just had an intimate meal together where you've heard teaching from him that was a bit harder to swallow than normal. There was the exciting bits about if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, God himself. And then he reminded you to love one another as he loved you. So far, so good. But a time was coming where he wouldn't be with you. Wait a second. If he'd come to reveal the Father, how could he disappear? Where was he going? Jesus then finished with a prayer, and it felt a lot like a goodbye. It's with all these thoughts swirling through your head that you walked to your group's special spot. This was the place that you guys spent time together, in the garden across from the Kidron Valley. It was night by the time you got there, and you hoped maybe to talk to Jesus about some of the confusing things that he'd said. But then, suddenly, through the darkness, you see torches. You hear shouts. It's, it's soldiers and officials from the temples and Pharisees. What are they doing here? How did they know you were here? Wait, is that? It can't be. Judas? He's betrayed us? What do we do? Do we fight? Do we run? Wait, what is Jesus doing? The whole way through these readings, you might have been tempted to ask yourself, where does the power lie? If Jesus is God, couldn't he have stopped this happening? As we've heard read, Jesus was arrested by force at night, taken to an unjust trial, 
and sentenced to death by a Roman official. Why didn't he stop it? In chapter 18, verses 4 to 14, we see the encounter between Jesus and the guards in the garden. At first, it might seem like Jesus was helpless to resist, but if we look closer, we see that Jesus was actually the driving force. He's the one who takes control of the situation and pushes it forward. If you look at the text, you see that Jesus actually speaks first. He looks at the guards and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, that's me. They're so shocked by this, they fall back. And so he pushes it again. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. That's me. If it's me you're looking for, let the rest go. Let's go. Jesus is actually the one who makes things happen. The guards, in fact, seem powerless. They're expecting a fight or resistance, not someone who willingly offers themselves up. And they don't really know how to deal with it. Peter thinks he knows what to do. He draws his sword and he cuts off one of the guard's ears, which I think is quite impressive to just get the ear. Um, But Jesus says, Peter, no, that's not what we do. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus knows what he's here for. The guards bind Jesus and leave. And I find it amusing that they still bind Jesus like he wasn't actually going to come willingly. In these verses, we see the complete obedience of Jesus uh, to his Father. He is willing to go despite knowing the outcome for him. And he does so for the sake of those with him, that they would be spared. Even in all of this process, he's thinking about how he loves others. This is the first of multiple times in the lead up to Jesus' death that we see his extraordinary nature coming through. As even when he is being treated poorly or unjustly, he cares for others more than himself. As the narrative moves on in verses 19 to 23, we see Jesus' first trial before the Pharisees. Obviously, the council had already made up their mind about what they were going to do. This is no just trial. These religious leaders are seeking to get this done quickly and quietly in the dead of night. And yet, again, Jesus is shown as the one with power, the one in the right, the one on the side of truth. In their conversation, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. You know what I've said. If I said something wrong, tell me what it is. And the guards strike him. You can't, the Pharisees strike him. You can't respond like that. And he goes, well, if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Tell me what I said that was wrong. And it's so obvious that the Pharisees have no response to this. They know there's nothing that they can actually pin on him. But in their minds, no matter the cost, he has to go. From this trial, knowing they can't do any more than this, the officials take Jesus to Pilate's palace. And here we see the first of multiple signs uh, that we see of their false righteousness. Did you notice that they don't go into the palace? They wait outside because they didn't want to be seen as unclean for going into a, a Gentile's place uh, on the, um, just before the Passover. To avoid that uncleanness, they didn't enter. So Pilate has to come out to them and goes, okay, well, what, what charges do you bring against this man? And this is the second time they've been asked that tonight, firstly by Jesus and second by Pilate. And again, they don't really have an answer. Any answer they give would only incriminate themselves. 
Pilate tells them, go away, deal with it yourselves. But their response in verse 31, though it's meant to show their righteousness, their piety and their, their loyalty, it actually betrays their true motive. We have no right to kill anyone. Here's the crux of it. The goal that they have stated clearly that Jesus would be killed. And their hope is that they can do it without incriminating themselves, without making themselves look bad. As the narrative progresses, we'll see just how far the religious leaders are willing to go to make this happen. Our story then shifts again to a conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate's potentially in the same situation we might find ourselves in coming uh, on a Sunday. He would have heard things about Jesus. He couldn't have not heard things about Jesus, but really had no idea personally what's going on. Jesus again brings up the truth. Like in his trial in front of the Pharisees, uh, he says the measuring bar for those on the side of truth is those who listen to Jesus. Perhaps out of exasperation, Pilate's response, what is truth? And to be fair, it's a messy situation for Pilate, who's probably just woken up. He's standing here with no charge brought to him, with a man on trial, and the person won't give him a straight answer as to what's going on. In Pilate's defence, uh, he moves to release Jesus as he finds no charge against him. But as he, he brings uh, Jesus out and goes, I'm not going to charge him. The Jews again, no, take him, kill him. The question again, where does the power lie? Obviously not with Pilate. It's obviously with the Jews. And instead they, they release Barabbas. So Pilate goes, okay, what, what can I do? How can I deal with this? I don't want to kill him but I don't want to deal with the Jews. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try flogging him. Maybe that'll appease the crowd. And so Jesus is flogged. He's dressed in a robe. He's beaten by the guards. He has a crown of thorns placed on his head. And Pilate brings him out again and goes, I find no charge against this man. And the Jews' response, crucify. Crucify. Because he claims to be the son of God. And to be fair, that is a bold claim. But if you've looked with us through uh, the conversations we've had, uh, through what we've seen about Jesus uh, in the weeks coming up to this, what if it's true? Pilate's response immediately is fear. He's perhaps tossing up, do I, do I deal with an angry crowd and a potential uprising, or do I kill this, this weird man who by some small chance might be who he says he is? And so he turns to Jesus and tries to get him to resolve the situation. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate says? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus' answer in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And here we have the crux of the power question. Power lies with God. Power lies with Jesus. It's through this whole process that we've seen that Jesus is actually the one who's in control and he's doing it out of obedience to his Father. And the greatest guilt lies with the Pharisees, those who are ignoring the truth, who are standing against him. Pilate again tries to release Jesus and the truth about the Pharisees finally comes out. They appeal to Caesar's authority in verse 12, saying that, He's a threat to Caesar, so you, you have to kill him, Pilate. And then 
They, in fact, say they have no king but Caesar. And here we see their first honest answer. This isn't a religious thing. This is them removing a threat to their position, whatever it takes. All their righteousness is proven to be naught. An earlier time in the life of God's people, uh, in the book of Samuel, we we hear about uh, God's people again demanding a king because they they don't have a king. They want a king like the other nations. And, And the issue there is that they do have a king. God is their king. God tells Samuel to respond to the people. It's not you they've rejected, but me as their king. It seems the fundamental problem with the human heart that was seen back in the Old Testament, uh, seen in Jesus' time, still continues today. Even the religious leaders of God's chosen people would reject God as their king. This would be like Colin saying, you know what, I'm not going to base my talks on the scriptures anymore. Instead, I'm just going to print out every talk that Scott Morrison ever does, and that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about on a Sunday. It's ridiculous. But somehow Pilate caves and Jesus is handed over. So the soldiers took Jesus and carrying his own cross, he was taken to outside the city and crucified. And the sign that Pilate wrote, written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek, meant that it would have been able to be read by anybody travelling past, Jew, Gentile, educated or uneducated all would have seen the sign reading, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, I'm not going to go into the horrific detail of what death by crucifixion would be like. But another indicator of how extraordinary Jesus is and how much he cares for and loves others is seen in 1925 to 28. While enduring the agony of the cross, Jesus sees his mother and a disciple that he loves, which presumably is John. And his response is, how are they going to be cared for? Mother, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Even while he is hanging on a cross, enduring immense pain, his first thought is, how, how are they going to be? Are they going to be okay? We see his other person focus throughout this whole time. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there and they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. These words would have had a different meaning depending on who heard them. To those falsely righteous religious leaders, it it might have been, that's that dealt with, it's over. Things can go back to normal. Nothing needs to change again. For Pilate, it might have meant, ah, this headache is done. I don't need to think about Jesus anymore. I can get back on with my life. For Jesus' followers who, who didn't yet understand It is finished might be a fearful question. Is it finished? What does this mean? What's next? As we've moved through the story, we've seen that the ultimate power lay not with the guards, 
not with the Pharisees, not with Pilate, but with God. Jesus willingly went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. He's the one who drove the plot forward. He went out of obedience, but why? It is finished tells us that Jesus' work on earth is done. As we read in verse 28, it says, Jesus died knowing everything had now been finished and so that scripture might be fulfilled. He was the one in power and in control and he gave himself willingly. His death was not a defeat, but a victory. But what was finished? What was fulfilled? Earlier in this series of talks on the conversations through John, Colin spoke to us about a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee called Nicodemus. Sorry, just need some water. <coughs> the same Nicodemus, uh, who was the one who actually helped take Jesus' body from the cross and placed it in the tomb. At the culmination of this conversation, in John 3, uh, 14 to 21, there is a statement of Jesus' purpose on earth. From John 3, 14 to 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they've done has been done in the sight of God. You see, God knows the state of our hearts. God knows that the same thing that caused people to reject him in the time of Samuel, that caused the religious leaders of Jesus' time to declare that they had no king other than uh, Caesar, uh, God knows that that same thing is in our hearts today. We all have rejected God. And yet he so desperately loved us that he sent his son to die for us. He sent his son to die so the barrier between us and God would be broken, that we might be forgiven and made right with God. The only way that we can be right with God is not through our religious actions and our false public righteousness like the Pharisees. It's not through trying to work out the nitty-gritty details like Pilate or putting Jesus in the the too-hard, move-on category. It's trusting in this extraordinary Jesus who came to die in our place, who came to change what we could not. It's putting our trust in the one proved trustworthy and to be reminded of the love that Jesus has for us. Tell me, has anyone else gone to such extraordinary lengths and denied themselves so much and given up their very life for you? This extraordinary death demands a response. So what will yours be? If you aren't a believer, when you leave today, you'll probably think to yourself, there we go, I've heard the story again. 
ticked the box, done the church thing. I don't really need to deal with Jesus again until Christmas. But does that seem like an appropriate response to what Jesus has done? Or if this is what God thinks needed to happen for your sake, do you need to respond to this? If this is something that you want to hear more about, or it has provoked a response in you, please don't leave today without talking to someone here, because it could be the most important conversation of your life. For those of you who do believe, have you slipped back into just trying to get by on the religious acts you're already doing, those that can be seen in public, those that others can recognise, and forgetting about your heart, and not stopping and reflecting on what the significance of this death is? Let this be a reminder for you of how dependent each of us needs to be on Jesus and his extraordinary death on our behalf. My friends, like Jesus' followers, it is right for us to feel sorry at his death. But we know that this is not the end. This was not a defeat, but a victory. In Jesus' discussion with his disciples just before heading to the garden, he told them what to expect at this time. From John 17, Jesus, seeing that they wanted to ask him about this, said, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, but then after a little while you'll see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. There's a reason we call today Good Friday. Come back Sunday to find out why.